Reading our Bibles regularly can be a challenge, but we're all on this journey together. We're praying that this podcast inspires you, helps you better understand God's Word, and builds your faith. This is Join the Journey with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. I am in the podcast studio with the one and only Mr. Grant Wilkie. Hello, everybody. Good morning. So, Grant, well, it's they might not be listening at morning. The real ones. The listen. real ones. That's right. The real ones listen at morning. Good morning to Grant's wife, Lois, who listens every day on the way to work. Shout out, Lois. Shout out, Lois. We love you. Hey, uh, Grant, you were here for First and Second Thessalonians. I was. You were supposed to be here with Becky Duncan, your coworker. I was, but two, she's sick. She's sick. So we're... We're winging it a little bit. I am, but you're prepared. I am so prepared, And Emma. so I'm ready to just jump in and talk about John 2. Sounds wonderful. And in John 2, we get some of, some of these iconic moments from Jesus, which is very fitting because for those of you who don't know Grant, he looks like a modern-day Jesus in headphones right now sitting across the table from me. He's got the long hair, the beard, and we're talking about the wedding at Cana. And it's Jesus's first time performing a miracle in the public eye. Would that be a good way to sum it up? Absolutely. And then we've got Jesus cleansing the temple. So he shows up and people are making money moves in the temple and he won't stand for it. That's not what the temple's for. And then uh, lastly, he makes this interesting claim, or we we see John record um, this interesting claim about Jesus, which says, hey, um, Jesus knows all people. He knows what's in man. So there's really three major movements in this chapter. Uh, Grant, take it from there. What what do we got to learn? Well, I think to understand the book of John, we have to realize that these are real people writing to to other real people. Mm -hmm. And so they have real objectives, real priorities, and the different gospel writers have different priorities. And so if you think about it, uh, the, the gospel of Matthew is written to demonstrate that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. There's a specific reason Matthew wrote his gospel. Hmm. John wrote his gospel for a very specific reason. And he actually tells us that reason at the very end of the book of John. He says, this is written, this is John 20, 31, right out of scripture. This is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the book of John doesn't only end with the idea of belief, but it actually begins with the, with the idea of belief. So John 1, 12, in the very first chapter, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that is Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. True belief allows us to become children of God and brothers with Christ. And John continues to express this idea again and again and again and again all throughout his entire gospel, specifically for the purpose that we might understand what it means to truly believe in Jesus Christ. And John 2 is a masterpiece of expressing this idea of belief in God. We see this this wedding where Jesus demonstrates his first miracle. What actually happens at that wedding, Emma? Jesus is at the wedding and they run out of wine, which was like the biggest cultural offense. I mean, such an embarrassment, really, for the family hosting. And Jesus is brought in to help the servants. And his mom says, hey, servants, do whatever he tells you. He can fix this problem. And after instructing the servants to fill the jars with water, they bring them out and draw 
a glass of what the servants would expect to be water, but what they draw instead is or are glasses of wine. And he had turned the water to wine. That's crazy. So here, Jesus does his first public miracle, and he demonstrates his authority over creation. Which is crazy. And look what happens at the end of this. In John 2, verse 11, we're told the result of this miracle. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, when Jesus manifests his glory, what happens after that? It says his disciples believed in him. Remember that idea of belief? It continues through John 2. Jesus demonstrates his authority over creation and his disciples begin to have belief that he is who they think he is, the Messiah. So after that, there's this beautiful account of a wedding and it's honestly a huge mood shift. There's this party and then Jesus goes to the temple and honestly, he goes from like- Big mood shift. He goes from like best party guest ever to- Like kind rage of feel, monster I know, kind from of, Dude Perfect. Yes. <laughs> you know <laughs> well, what I'm talking about? I, I don't. I'm, oh. I, the, the young kids listening will know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I hope they will. Because I definitely don't. <laughs> they will. <laughs> but he goes from the life of the party to what seems like a buzzkill. If you see it just at face value, he jumps into the temple and he starts driving people out. Emma, would you mind explaining that story for anyone who hasn't gotten to read the chapter yet? Yeah, so here's what's happening. This place that is supposed to be an opportunity for worship for all of God's people from any place to come and offer sacrifices and worship God has been commercialized. And so it's almost as if these money changers have turned it into a farmer's market or like um, the Empire State Building gift shop. And they're selling binoculars for people to go up to the top and see this view. Uh, but the objective is, isn't to glorify God through creation, or in this case, through worship in the temple, it's become, hey, let's make money and take advantage of these people who've traveled a long way to get here. And the heart might not even be take advantage. It's almost like, let's just make this as convenient as possible. If you want to sacrifice a pigeon, hey, we've got pigeons. We, we've got what you need. And it's taking out the holy heart posture. It's removing a sacrificial heart posture and making it, ah, eh, this is easy. Like, this is just what you do. It's easy. It's convenient. And it's no longer worshipful, which is obviously a big disgrace to God and therefore the Son of God, because he comes in and is like, how dare you disgrace my father's house in such a way? He goes crazy. Oh, I mean, seemingly crazy. Yeah. He drives them out. And it says he makes a whip and he's cracking it and he's sending everyone out. And the Jews come up to him and they say, this is verse 18. They say, what sign do you have for doing these things? They are bewildered. He also flipped the tables. Yeah, he flips the tables. It's like a WWE match. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> and Jesus answers them. He says, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. Now, that makes lots, a lot of sense to us. Mm-hmm. We see, we are three days insulin. We think of Jesus dying and resurrecting after three days. But the Jews have no idea what he's talking about. And they say, brother, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you think you can raise it up in three yeah. days? You think you can tear it all down? and it, it just, it's nonsensical. But actually, in this passage, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over everything. Mm-hmm. So in the, at the wedding, he's demonstrating his authority over creation. But here he's demonstrating that he's actually the sovereign God. Because if you keep reading, it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, not just that earthly temple. When therefore he was raised from the dead, this is verse 22, his disciples remembered that he had said this, that he had said, I will raise it up in three days. 
and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's a retroactive idea, but you have to remember, John was there. The writer of this gospel was one of the people watching. And so when he's telling this story, he goes, Jesus said this. He predicted that he would raise the temple, the temple of his body after three days. And it led him and the other disciples to believe in the message that he had given them. This idea of belief in the wedding, his power and his authority over creation, and now his sovereignty, his authority over all things. It's good, Grant. And then we get into this last section, these last, what is it, three verses, which are stand in a little bit of contrast. They're, they're, they're interesting. What do you make of those? So in these first two passages, we see God's authority and we see this idea of belief. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And listen to this. This is how the, this chapter ends. Now, when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So that sounds awesome. It sounds like people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This raises a really interesting idea because it sounds like people are coming to believe in Jesus, but it sounds like Jesus is not giving himself to them. That raises some problems if we have a really, really uh, simple view of who God is. But when we understand that there is something called true belief and there's something called false belief, it kind of fleshes out what's happening here. We see that some might believe in the works that Jesus is doing, these miracles, these water into wine, and we have textual clues that Jesus has done other miracles. Some believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but they're believing those signs. It's like what Matthew 16, 4 says. It says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. That sign of Jonah is the sign of death by the cross and the resurrection that came from that. So there is some belief that is true and some belief that is false. We must ask ourselves what distinguishes true belief from false belief? And I think that's a sobering question. Emma, what would you it have to say great. about that? Um, I'm reminded of 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued on with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And I think that is a great a great indicator of true belief versus false belief. True belief persists and doesn't need a sign. I don't need life to go well. Uh, I don't need to win at life. I don't need my life to be perfect in order to believe in Christ. Whereas this false belief, it's circumstantial. It needs to be wowed. It needs to be impressed. It needs to be um, steady. Whereas this true belief says, hey, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth, died for my sins, and rose again, regardless of the circumstances I face in my life, which is so much easier said than done. Uh, but that's that's the picture we get in Scripture. That's what it looks like. It persists. True belief persists. So um, I wish we could keep talking, but you'll be back for John 3. So we will continue the conversation in a bit. We'll see you all tomorrow. Then as always, I am so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. 
The Join the Journey podcast is produced by Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. You can learn more about Watermark by connecting with us on social media. Just search Watermark Church, all one word. And to read along with us, visit jointhejourney.com. And thank you guys for listening.